Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning, Hope Chapel. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. I want to invite you right away to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We have a lot of ground to cover and a very exciting and very, very God-exalting passage to work through. I'm very excited about it. Where are we in the book of Acts this morning? Well, you'll recall last weekend that Pastor Andrew preached to us from Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, where we are this week, represents a turning point in Luke's historical account of the rise of early Christianity, the spread of the gospel. And we're going to see at this moment in Acts that the gospel begins to spread beyond Jerusalem and beyond the ethnic boundaries of the Jewish people. But before we get to those specific events where we're actually outside of Jerusalem and the gospel is actually touching people who are beyond the ethnic boundaries of Judaism, we encounter a very important pivotal event here in chapter 7. So, the gospel is about to reach a new frontier, but first we experience this pivotal event. And this is an event of irreconcilable differences. It's an account of differences between a young Jewish Christian man and the Jewish elite, the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem. Now, we just stood a couple minutes ago, and we prayed for boldness, right? In many ways, this account is an account of tremendous boldness. But it's also an account of tremendous conviction. And I would add to the prayer that we just prayed that as believers today, just like believers then, our boldness needs to be underwritten by a genuine Spirit-inspired conviction about the gospel, about the things of God, and about God Himself, amen? And so, in this event, we're going to be introduced to a man named Stephen. We actually met him last week. Pastor Andrews said that as the gospel spread and as the early church grew in Jerusalem and in Judea, that the needs of the early church also grew with it. And so, the apostles had to appoint seven men of good reputation, and they had to start distinguishing roles in the church so that those apostles could continue to protect their time and to devote their time to matters of highest spiritual and apostolic priority, and those priorities were simply prayer in the ministry or the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. So, they appointed seven men to serve the people and to kind of be the boots on the ground and serve tables, meet the needs of all the people in the Christian community. And among the people that they identified and raised up was a man named Stephen. Who is this Stephen? We're told by Luke back in chapter 6 that Stephen is a man who is full of faith and he's full of the Holy Spirit. We're told by Luke that he's not only full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, but that he is also full of grace and full of power. 
He's pretty full. He's also a man who is doing great wonders and signs among the people. And the people reacted against his great signs and wonders that he was performing, being full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and full of grace and full of power. And so, in reaction to how God was using him as a consequence of how God had filled and empowered him, various groups of people rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But here's the thing, God prepared him. He was full. And so, Luke tells us that they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Let me ask you a question. What do bad men know? What do evil men do when they cannot beat you on a level playing field? They cheat. They lie. In some instances, like, the, like this one, they even kill And so, Stephen is opposed, and these people rise up, and they secretly instigate accusers against him. They stir up all the people. They stir up the elders. They stir up the scribes against him. They drag him in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which if you remember from two weeks ago was like the supreme court of Jerusalem. It was like the supreme court of that Jewish culture. And they set up false witnesses, and they bring formal charges against him, this Stephen who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit and full of grace and full of power. And they specifically, they accuse him of blaspheming God, of blaspheming Moses, of speaking words against the temple of God in Jerusalem, and of speaking words against the law of God that had been given to Moses. These are, of course, twisted distortions of His message as He has faithfully proclaimed the good news of Jesus. And we, of course, know that Jesus Himself predicted that because of Israel's disobedience, one day the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, that it would be torn down. And in A.D. 70, sure enough, the Roman Empire marched in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they raised the temple, and they tore it to the ground, and Jesus' words were fulfilled. But we also know that in the Olivet Discourse, uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 2, that Jesus said that, uh, that destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But was He referring to the literal temple? He was referring to what? To His body. So, they distort Jesus' words and as a consequence, they distort Stephen's, Stephen's words and they try to set Him up. So, here at the beginning of our passage, we have Stephen. Stephen, a man captured by God a man who's been changed by God, a man who was equipped by God, a man who was empowered by God, a man who was filled by God. So much so that Luke tells us that gazing at him, all who were presiding over that council saw that his face was like the face of an angel, reminiscent of Jesus himself when he was transfigured, not just reflecting God's glory like a mirror, but someone through whom God's actual glory was shining through directly. So, we come to chapter 7. At this point, formal charges have been brought against Stephen. The Supreme Court is back in session, and this brings us to verse 1 of chapter 7. In verse 1, we see that in the temple, the high priest says to to Stephen, with respect to the charges that have been brought against him, are these things so? When you, when you go to court and charges are brought against you, 
you're asked to enter your plea. This is the high priest's way of telling, to, telling Stephen, okay, here we are, enter your plea. Do you plead guilty? Now, if we were in court and we were asked to enter our plea, we would very naturally respond by saying, I am not guilty. Or maybe in some instances, I am guilty. But the subject of our response would very naturally be, I, me. It's at this point in the narrative that Stephen does something totally unexpected. Rather than entering a plea, rather than declaring his guilt or his innocence, he launches into this kind of long diatribe, this long summary of the Old Testament. Fifty verses. You'll notice that I didn't read the passage to you up front. I don't have enough time to read it and to preach through it, so we're going to preach through it. Amen? Now, his speech doesn't seem to fit the context because they ask him for a response about his guilt or innocence, but he doesn't respond to that question. Rather, he goes on this long speech about Israel's history, and before we go through it, we have to understand what his rhetorical strategy is, what his purpose in doing this actually is. You see, he's been accused of speaking against not only God, but the most important things to the Jewish people. And so now he is going to line up Jewish history, and he's going to use Jewish history to turn his accusers' accusations on their heads and point them right back at them. And he's going to say, look at the Scriptures. If the Bible tells us anything, it tells us that I'm innocent and you are guilty. You are guilty just like your fathers before you. Now, we're dealing this morning in this passage with a speech, a rehearsal of the Old Testament that Stephen gave to accusers and to a Supreme Court 2,000 years ago. We might wonder, what does this speech have to do with us? I believe that there are at least two ways in which Stephen's speech speaks to us today 2,000 years later in our modern setting. I believe that it provides for us a word of encouragement, and I believe that it also provides for us a word of warning. More specifically, I believe that it encourages us, church, that God is faithful and that He is patient. We worship a God who is faithful to keep His Word, to keep His promises, and we worship a God who is patient and long-suffering with His people. But on the flip side of that coin, we also worship a God who has an end to his patience. There is an end to his patience. And so, in Stephen's speech, we see that God is faithful, that he is patient, that he is long-suffering with a stubborn, rebellious, failure-plagued people, but we also see a warning that when people persist in their unbelief, when they repeatedly resist the testimony of God's Holy Spirit, that God will eventually give them over to their sin and consequently over to judgment. So, look with me at what he says in response to the questioning of the high priest in verse 2. Luke writes, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land 
that I will show you. He has been accused of blaspheming God, but rather than responding immediately about himself and his guilt or innocence, the first words that come out of Stephen's mouth are a testimony to the glory of God. He lifts high the name of God right out of the gate. The subject of his entire response is not himself, but is his God. And it's not just any God, it is the God of glory, the one true God. When we think of God's glory, when theologians speak of God's glory, they're not referring kind of to one of His qualities or one of His divine attributes. Rather, God's glory is the sum and the substance of all that He is, all of His divine qualities and all of His divine attributes. His glory encapsulates everything that He is as God. When we look to the Old Testament, we see Moses asking God, show me your glory. And God responds to him by saying, I'm going to put you behind a rock and I will let my backside pass before you because you cannot handle my glory. If you were to be fully exposed to my glory, you would die. So this is the God of glory. And immediately, Stephen is directing our attention upward to a great, transcendent, magnificent, powerful, amazing, providential God, but who is also a God of initiative. Because notice that he says that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. God took the first step. God is a God of divine initiative. He appeared to Abraham. Abraham didn't do some kind of weird incantation or ritual to bring God down. No, God of his own volition and will appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, when he was in Ur, when he was in a pagan land. Now, let me ask you a question. We know the Bible story. What's special about Abraham? Any takers? You want to know what's special about Abraham? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing is special about Abraham. He's a pagan man from a pagan land with a pagan family that worship pagan gods. But the God of glory appeared to a pagan man in a pagan land at a pagan time while they were worshiping pagan gods and for the fame of his name called him out of that context and said, go. Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. I mean, God hadn't even shown him the land. He just said, go, leave your family, leave your land, leave your customs, leave your religions, leave it all behind. Go into the land. After you go, I'll show it to you. When the God of glory speaks to you that way, what do you do? you go. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Abraham makes it halfway. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. God removed him from... So, Abraham gets to Haran. He gets halfway to the land which God would promise to him. 
His father dies, and God's like, okay, I'm going to take more initiative. So God takes Abraham from there, and he takes them, takes Abraham into the promised land, which at this point would have been uh, the land of Israel. So Stephen says that God removed him and put him in this land in which you are now living, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. So God, after all this, finally gets Abraham into this land, which he told him that he would take him to, but he doesn't give it to him, not even a foot's length. But, but God promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, this is important because Stephen recounts that God promised he promised. Remember, God is faithful. He's faithful to keep His promises. God promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had what? No child. So, here's Abraham. He's been taken into this land that God told him that he would show him. God doesn't give it to him when he's actually in the land, but says, I'll give it to you in the future, to you and to your, your offspring. And Abraham's like, but I don't even have any offspring. You know, what, what is going on right now? And then God spoke to this effect, verse 6 that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. You may not have any kids right now, Abraham, but you're going to have kids, and your kids are going to have kids, and their kids are going to have kids, and your offspring are going to be so numerous, they'll be sufficiently numerous to populate a foreign land, and sufficiently numerous in that foreign land that they could be enslaved, and that they can be afflicted, and Abraham's got to be thinking at this point, like, that doesn't sound like a good promise. Verse 7, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and they shall worship me in this place. God had taken Abraham to the place that would be the promised land, the place that would be Israel. And he said, over the span of centuries, I'm going to do all these great and magnificent things. I'm going to do them because I'm the hero. I'm the one that's in control. And then I'm going to bring them out of captivity after 400 years, and I'm going to bring them right back to this place where I am making these promises to you, and I'm going to cause them to worship me. How big of a God is that? How big is the God who can say, I am sovereign, not just over your life, but over your generations and over the centuries. I promise these things, and I'm faithful to keep those promises. Let me ask you a question. If God is that big, can you trust Him to be faithful in your life? How many of us have experienced God's faithfulness? How many of us have experienced God's patience? 400 years worth of people. Do you think God had to be patient with them? Yeah, we're going to see it. And verse 8, and God gave him the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision is a very delicate and personal thing, but God gave it to Abraham as a, a marker 
an identifier, a reminder of the promises that he made to him in that land of all that he would fulfill on Abraham's behalf over the centuries, ultimately for the fame of God's own name, for his own glory and for his own purposes. And so then what do we see at the end of verse 8? And so, Abraham became the father of Isaac when he was 100 years old, right? And he circumcised Isaac on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And so we already begin to see God's promises fulfilled in Stephen's speech as he records the events of the Old Testament in Genesis. God was faithful. Abraham has a son. His son has a son. His son has 12 sons. And the generations are progressing. Now, Stephen concludes his recapitulation of the story of God and Abraham by referring to the 12 patriarchs, the 12 forefathers who would become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he shifts his attention to talk next about Joseph. First he talks about Abraham, next he talks about Joseph as another example. And these 12 patriarchs, Stephen says, the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. So, we're like flying through Stephen's account. We're like, yes, God, 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 God. All oh, right, there's the 12 patriarchs. God is faithful to his promises. And then right away, what do the 12 patriarchs do? Are they heroes? No, they're cowards. Immediately, we see their failure. Because what do they do? We know this story. Joseph was the one whom God appointed. Joseph was the one whom God raised up. God, Joseph was the one that God intended to be a deliverer. And what do they do? They become jealous of God's favor on Joseph, and they sell him into slavery. Selling someone into slavery is one of the most dehumanizing things you can do to them. You take somebody created the image of God, and you turn them into a good or a service to be exchanged for money. This is strike one in Stephen's speech against his accusers, against the religious elite, against the Jewish leaders. Because what he's saying is, look at your history. Your very history testifies the fact that the 12 patriarchs, our forefathers, the ones that you hold in high esteem, their lives were characterized by failure and infidelity to Yahweh. So they sell Joseph God's anointed one, into slavery. What happens? How does God respond to this? Does God crush the 12 patriarchs? Does He judge them right away? Would God have been justified in dealing harshly with them? He would have been perfectly justified, but here is an encouragement. God is faithful, and God is patient, right? And so he doesn't crush the 12 patriarchs. And we see rather God using Joseph's uh, trial as a means of deliverance and using it redemptively. So look with me. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, <clears throat> but God, those are always two good words. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom 
before Pharaoh. Just think about all the things God's doing. Just going back to Abraham, it's God who appeared, God who spoke, God who sent, God who shows, God who removed, God who promised, God who spoke, God who promises to judge, God who promises to deliver, God who covenants with Abraham, and then that God begins to make good on his promises because he's faithful, and then God is with Joseph, God rescues Joseph out of all of his afflictions, then God gives him favor, and God gives him wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. As a result, Pharaoh makes him ruler over Egypt and over all of Pharaoh's household. Is God in control? He's in control over everything. Look at verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction. God is sovereign over all human affairs, is He not? But He's also sovereign over all natural affairs, right? So, God allowed for there to be a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan. He allowed for there to be great affliction. And so, Stephen says to these Jewish elite, and our fathers, the patriarchs, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And then on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, to our fathers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons at all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. The point being that though they rejected Joseph, God used Joseph redemptively, and He turned what, what the forefathers, what the brothers meant for evil and used it for their good. Think about Joseph for just a minute. Think about how he is portrayed in Scripture. Think about how Stephen is describing him. Joseph, God's chosen one, rejected, suffered, vindicated, after his suffering, and then used by God to deliver his brothers from their own sin. Does that sound familiar? Next, Stephen turns his attention to the example of Moses in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, the promise being the promise that God had made to Abraham that though his that though his offspring would be enslaved and afflicted in a land not theirs for 400 years, that God would judge that nation and bring them out. As the time of the promise, as the time for the judgment and for the people to be, to be brought out from captivity drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. What happens when Moses is born? What happens? Right? He's put in a basket and put in the Nile, right? And then he's found by who? Pharaoh's daughter, and then he's adopted into Pharaoh's house. Just a coincidence, right? He's adopted into Pharaoh's house, and then he's, he's brought up as her own son, Stephen says, and then Moses is instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. 
It's the same language that's used to describe Jesus in the Gospels. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. What happens, what happens when Moses decides to kind of go down from the pyramids, if he was in the pyramids, you know? What happens when Moses decides to go down to the people and to visit his brothers? What does he see happening? Right? He sees an Egyptian uh, slave, sl- slaver being harsh with one of his brothers, and so what does he do? He kills the Egyptian, right? And then the next day, Moses, we're told, supposing that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation or deliverance from slavery by his hand, went down there, but, but they did not understand. And so, as he went down there, they, they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, why are, men, you are brothers, why, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Well, funny you should ask. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? You see, for Stephen, this is strike two against the people of Israel. Not only did they reject Joseph as God's anointed one, but they also now, for the first time, reject Moses as God's anointed deliverer. Strike one, strike two. How many strikes when you're out? Let's keep going. So, Moses gets intimidated because he's called out for killing the Egyptian. He, you know, tucks tail and runs, and he flees to Midian, where he becomes the father of two other sons. You know, he's doing his own thing. But then God is faithful, is he not? And so, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness at Sinai. We see the burning bush, right? When Moses sees the burning bush, he's, he's amazed. He draws near to look. And then we encounter the voice of the Lord. There came the voice of the Lord. Here again, God speaks. Here again, God takes the initiative. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. He trembled because he heard the very voice of the very God of glory. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Was there anything intrinsically holy or special about that ground, about that dirt? No. What is it that made that ground holy? The presence of God. Exactly. Hold that thought. So, God tells Moses, this is holy ground because I'm here. Take off your sandals. Why would God ask him to take off his sandals because it's holy ground? Because it's from the dirt that God made man. And this is a reminder to Moses, I am God, you are not. From the dust I brought you, and I've come down to address you from above. Let your feet touch the dirt from whence you came. And then God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. What a great God! This is not a God who is disconnected or disinterested in our sufferings. 
in, in, in our own human affairs. This is the God who comes down to confront Moses. And what does God say? God says, I have surely seen, I have heard, I have come down, and I will deliver. So come, I will send. Who is the object of all the actions? Who's doing the work? Who's doing the heavy lifting? Are, are, we, beginning, are we beginning to apprehend a majestic portrait of this God of glory? And so Stephen then goes on to recount for his accusers, for this Supreme Court, who this Moses really is that they rejected first in Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent us as both ruler and redeemer. Ruler and redeemer. Do those terms sound familiar? Do we know another ruler and redeemer? By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, speaking prophetically about Jesus, the Messiah. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. All right, it's all teed up. Are you ready? How many strikes are we at so far? Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Strike three. You're out. I want you to picture God's people, the Israelite people, <clears throat> in captivity for four centuries. We haven't even been a nation for four centuries, right? And God has supplied deliverer after deliverer in their history. And now Moses is the most recent anointed deliverer is leading them out of slavery and affliction, which they experienced bondage for 400 years. He's leading them out through the desert. God is providing for them. And God gives to them through Moses, his servant, the mediator, a law, living oracle, Stephen says, and so here they are, they're right there in the desert, and they're walking towards the promised land with Moses. They're walking, they're walking, they're receiving from God he's providing, they're walking. But even though their feet are headed in this direction, their hearts are still stuck in Egypt. Their hearts are still attached to the idols in the way of life from which God was trying to deliver them. This hit me really hard as I was studying this passage because I could not help but think about the modern evangelical church in our country. How many of us are guilty of waking up on Sunday morning, getting dressed, getting prepared, walking out the door, getting in the car, making our way to church, walking up the stairs, singing some songs, 
going through the motions, right? Listening to the sermon, hopefully it's not too long. This one's getting kind of long, you know? <clears throat> get through that last worship song really quick. Get out the door, get to brunch, maybe head over to the kettle on Manhattan Beach. But really, our hearts are still wed to the things of the world. It's a convicting thought, isn't it? Are our hearts in the promised land? Or are our hearts stuck in Egypt? Do we long for our deliverer and our redeemer, for our Jesus? Are our hearts still focused on the idols, the false gods in Egypt? Look at what Stephen says. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and were offered, <clears throat> and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And here it is, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Rejoicing in the works of their hands, preoccupied with the things of this world, the things that they made, their, the things that impressed them, that captured their attention, were things that were man-made, not the things of God. They had an earthly perspective, not a heavenly perspective. They had a, a temporal perspective, not an eternal perspective. What happens when you get three strikes? You're out. So we have seen with Joseph, that God was faithful and patient to deliver his people despite their obedience. We see the first time Moses reject, is rejected that God is faithful and patient to deliver his people from captivity in Israel, but now we see with this second rejection of Moses, and it's not just a rejection of him, it's an explicit rejection of God himself. We see that there is an end to God's patience. That there is only so long God will allow us to persist in hardness of heart and in unbelief before He hands us over to judgment. Verse 42, but God turned away. Those are scary words. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. That is a reference to all the spiritual forces of darkness that stand behind the false idols that they worshiped in Egypt. And Amos prophesied about this, and Stephen quotes Amos, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God is still faithful and patient. He keeps all of the promises that He made to Abraham, but the sin and the persistent refusal of God and the unbelief of the wilderness generation invited upon them a curse of God. And we know that they entered the promised land, and we know that they took the tabernacle and they built a temple, and we'll get to that in a minute, but you know what? 
Eventually, they were exiled by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, right? Eventually, God's judgment was poured out on them. We cannot, like those Israelites, as God's people today, on one hand, try to enjoy all the benefits of salvation without also walking in obedience. Those two ways of life are fundamentally incompatible. And so, what has Stephen done? He has used the example of of Abraham. He's used the example of Joseph. He's used the example of Moses to demonstrate three strikes and the forefathers of Israel are out. They've invited God's judgment. They have demonstrated not faithfulness, but faithlessness. They are prototypical of the very people that Stephen is addressing. Now, he's been accused of speaking against the temple, and in verses 44 through 47, Stephen addresses the temple, and he says, yes, our fathers brought the tabernacle into the land, and David saw the tabernacle and said, we need to build something more befitting of God. But did God allow David to build the temple? No, because David had spilled too much blood, and so God allows Solomon to build the temple, and the temple becomes something very significant to their national and ethnic identity. But now we're at the point in Stephen's speech where he just lowers the boom, where he pronounces a final indictment on those who are indicting him. He completely turns the tables in verse 48. Thinking about the temple is kind of the concluding point. Yet, the most high. I mean, have we, has he painted a picture of a majestic God, of a sovereign God, of a glorious God? It's only fitting that he brings his conclusion forward by referencing that God as the most high God. Church, we worship the most high God, the only God, the God who is. The most high God does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? It's a big God. The God who has ordered the totality of everything that is. And now Stephen nails them. It's time for him to pronounce his own verdict. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, you stubborn people, you foolish people, you're stiff-necked. God cannot, you will not allow God to steer you one way or the other. You are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You may be circumcised in the flesh, but your hearts are dead. Your hearts are closed off to the God that you think you worship, the God who has been patient and faithful. You're uncircumcised in heart. This is why Jesus says you need a new heart. This is why the prophets foretell the new birth, the beautiful act of regeneration when we're saved, when we're given a new heart and a new life by saying, you know, rend your hearts and not your garments, 
be circumcised in heart. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, unwilling to hear from God, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, this whole time through this whole long monologue and speech, Stephen has, as a matter of solidarity, always referenced, you know, the, the 12 patriarchs as our fathers, right? But they were all characterized by failure, them and the generations that followed them. And so now he changes his tone. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which of the prophets that God sent? I've named some of the ones that God sent, but let's take all the ones that God sent. If we look through all of Scripture and we survey exhaustively all the prophets that God sent to you and to your fathers, which of them did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, like John the Baptist whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You say, I blaspheme the law. You received the law by angels and you, you did not keep it. Your fathers persecuted the prophets. The prophets were the ones that were foretelling the coming of Messiah, of Jesus, but you're worse than them because you killed the Messiah himself. That's a heavy indictment, isn't it? church in closing, in His patience and in His faithfulness, the God of glory has sent His ultimate deliverer to us. He has sent to us His Son, His eternal Son, Emmanuel, God with us. Think about Christ, God's chosen anointed one, living a perfect life, rejected by His people, suffered, crucified, died, buried, but vindicated by the Father, raised, ascended, enthroned, exalted, who presently reigns to deliver His brothers, to deliver you and to deliver me. The only question is, how will we respond to that deliverer? How will you respond to Jesus? Will you follow Him with your whole heart? Will you yield your whole heart to Him? Or will your heart continue to ache for Egypt, for the things of this world? There's no other option. You are either with Him or you are against Him. You will either receive Him or you will refuse Him. Will we be like the stiff-necked Jews who rejected all whom God sent them, even their own Messiah who came to deliver them, or will we be like Stephen, a man changed by the God of glory, a man who had met Jesus and who was living for Him? Who will we be like, church? We can take the lights down. I want to invite the worship team up. I want to invite us, before we come, to, to bring our offerings and to pick up our communion elements, to just take a moment. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. I want to invite us to take a moment and to ask this question of ourselves. Where is my heart? Is my heart in Egypt? Is my heart attached to the things of this world? 
Or has my heart been changed? And is it possessed by Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been saved. You've walked with Jesus. You know Him. You love Him. But you've backslidden. You've turned. In Egypt, the things of this world have recaptured the affection of your heart. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray a prayer of repentance and faith this morning. Or maybe you're here this morning, the Word of God has convicted your heart, and you know that you have always been rejecting the one that, Jesus, the, one that the Lord sent. You've always rejected Jesus, but you want to know Jesus. You know that your heart is stuck in Egypt, that you're living for the things of this world, but you know because the Holy Spirit is impressing it upon your heart, convicting your heart of your sin. You know that you want to be delivered from your sin. You know that you want to know Jesus. If you need to do any business with God, I just want to ask you, everybody's heads are bowed, just to be willing to raise your hand and identify yourself. Anybody. I see a hand back there. I see a hand over here, over here, over here, over here, over here, over here. Praise God, over here. I see hands. Praise God. Praise God that He is faithful and patient and that He has sent His Son Jesus to save us from our sins. Pray that prayer with me if you raised your hand. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You are patient and that You are faithful to Your promises. And You have promised to save me if I put my trust in Your Son Jesus. You have promised to change me as I put my trust in Jesus. I confess to you this morning that I am just a sinful person, that I stand guilty before you, that my life has been characterized not by obedience to you, but by disobedience, not by serving you, but by serving myself. And so this morning, I just confess it all to you, and I, I surrender my life to you. I, Jesus, I put my trust in you. I ask that you forgive me for my sins. Turn my heart fully towards you. I pray this prayer in full confidence because I have heard this morning about the God who is faithful, the God who is true, and the God who keeps His promises. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.